0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast, I'm Tom Keen with David Gurra. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. One of the things David uh, Gurra and I like to do is paint the picture of our geography. And as the movie of years ago, the Russians are coming, the Russians are coming. David, if you're in Richmond, which is like 112% Republican, they're coming. (laughs) Because they're commuting from Richmond into Washington. And this is east and north of Richmond, Henrico County. They're coming and they're changing the demographics of any given district, including the 7th District of Virginia.
1: And the representative of that district is one Dave Pratt, Congressman Dave Bratt, uh, who's also a member of the House Budget Committee, an important committee uh, as we look ahead to uh, the prospects for tax reform. He joins us now on our phone lines so we can get into the difficulties of that commute between Richmond and Washington a little bit here, Congressman, if you if you want. But let me just ask you where we stand in this process. I spoke to your uh, chairwoman yesterday, Diane Black, uh, from Capitol Hill, and, and she assured me she thinks there's going to be a vote uh, on Thursday on the budget resolution. Where do things stand as you see it?
2: Yeah, right now, I mean, we're, we're standing by the basic architecture, which is good, right? I mean, that, that just means the corporate rate 20, uh, pass throughs 25, repatriation, some money coming back from abroad, and then a middle class tax cut. And we're fleshing out the details, right, which are huge and significant over the past few weeks. We've been holding meetings every day. But the real deal will be whether we can keep the pay for us, right? If we lose all, if we're trying to get rid of some of the deductions and loopholes, special interests, and all that kind of thing. If you get rid of those, uh, those are the pay-fors that help to reduce uh, tax rates for the middle class. And so that's the big deal. And so that's going to be fighting off the swamp. You're going to hear everybody in the nation, right, every special interest on K Street uh, coming up here and saying, hey, don't get rid of my special deduction. And if you don't do that, then you can't give as much uh, to the middle class and to the small business S-Corp. And so just roughly speaking, that's where we're at.
1: Carson, Bratt, you've been there for, for a few years now. You know that when that begins to happen, when the special interests descend on Capitol Hill and begin meeting with you and, and your colleagues, that tends to slow the process down. Uh, how worried are you that as a result of that, as a result of, of so many people trying to get a piece of this or change parts of it, uh, it's going to become increasingly difficult, something that's already being positive is being increasingly difficult, it's going to get even harder?
2: Yeah, well, that, that's the major concern. I mean, the Freedom Caucus, we've been the warriors. We get hit over the head every day for trying to halt spending up here. The deficit this year <clears throat> under our own leadership is $666 billion, right? Not a good number uh, for many reasons. <laughs> yeah. And so we're, we, we're working on the spending part, but we, we have agreed to forego some savings, right? We fought right. for $200, 200 billion in mandatory savings. Uh, in order to keep the process moving, because everybody sees what the Senate did last time on health care, right? well, they just face planted, and so that's the, okay. that's the challenge. We got to keep keep
1: the momentum. Do you see what the gentleman there from the Princeton Theological Seminary did, Tom? Yeah, doing? I saw that. I, saw, I,
0: I, I, you know, I, I don't even want to go there. I'm gonna, you know end up with, uh, you know, the hate <laughs> the, the congressman, the hate mail will all come to me. Always. Um, and what I want to know, Dave Brad, is you came out of the common sense of hope college, Kalamazoo, Michigan. You came out of the common right. sense of Virginia, the fabric of Virginia. You did the, the yep. upset beating Eric Cantor and all that years ago. And now you got to be a deficit responsible Republican. How many of, of, of you guys are there out there i mean at some point this puppy gets scored everybody figures out the math and we're going to expand the deficit based on everything i've read are you going to push back against that yes yeah, i mean we we always do we push back
2: but this one i taught college kids for 20 years right and so the real deal the swamp is the spending right it's untouchable we, we tried so hard defined defined savings. And the Democrat budget right, never gets brought up, right? But the Democrat Progressive Caucus 100 votes two weeks ago. They put okay. a tax increase, a tax increase of $10 trillion, which raises the debt and deficit even but, more. But
0: here's a critical and question. So
2: got, I, I put in a – well, let me, let me just quickly. Please. I, we, we, I put in a, uh, a, debt, a debt ceiling increase, tough balance budget amendment. It gets
0: 50 votes. No Democrats and very few Republicans. Okay. So, I, it's tough this is critical whether it's Kalamazoo Michigan where you went to college yep. or it's some you know rich, rich establishment republicans at the Jefferson Hotel in Richmond are they going to squawk about a ballooning deficit or not
2: no nope nope they're not i mean that, that's I, I wish more americans would really raise a ruckus over the spending cuz that is the crucial problem up here uh, but the Democrats racked up another $10 trillion, uh, under Bush. We didn't do great. Uh, that's the continuing. But we have $100 trillion mm. in unfunded liabilities to the kids, right? So with a straight face, the only thing I can offer that 20-year-old kid is, hey, Medicare, Social Security, they're all in trouble. Twenty they're upside down, insolvent. The only thing I can offer you with a straight face right now is, a, is an economy that we're going to try to pop, where you better jump no. in, get yourself skilled up, and get ready to compete in the global no. workforce. And that's it.
0: You better go. David Girl, jump in here, because I'm going to start waxing microeconomics, and no one wants that. <laughs> he,
1: he would know, uh, know well, of course, the academic comments. Uh, I'm thinking back to what uh, Senator Flake said yesterday. He's talking about his regrets, his regrets about the political process. Uh, Diane Black told me yesterday she's not completely happy with the budget as it stands now. She wanted a more conservative budget than the one she's going to end up having to, to vote for. Pass on to, to all of your, your colleagues – Given all of that, uh, how much enthusiasm do you have for passing this, this budget? Do you see it here as nothing more than a, than a necessity to get to tax reform? How would you characterize your enthusiasm for the document as it stands now?
2: Well, for the document as it stands now, I'm very enthused. But, uh, you know, on, on health care, we were prim- we said we're going to repeal Obamacare, and then we're going to have free market principles and competition, and then the first bill out of the chute is this huge federal government thing and so you see what the swamp can do to good ideas. They just get crushed, and then you get down to skinny bill, and then down to nothing. So if we keep this current document, this will pop the economy probably 1%, right? We'll go from 2% to 3%. In fact, we're growing at 3% the real economy, right? The markets are running. right. The real economy's is up about 3 on the expectation uh, that we put this into place in the future. If we don't do that, holy moly, okay. right? But but Congressman Brett, the,
0: the raging debate right now is led by Dr. Hassett, chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors, and opposing him are more Democrat economists like Dr. Krugman of Princeton and uh, Secretary, former Secretary-Treasurer of Lawrence Summers, but many Republican economists as well, is the certitude that tax reform will lead to growth in a prosperous middle class outside Richmond, Virginia. Do you buy that sequence?
2: That will lead to growth in the middle class? Yes. Yeah, yeah, I do. I mean, that's where the the Democrats and Republicans get into a brawl, right? The Republicans are not afraid to say, we want to pump up the supply side of the economy. The supply side (laughs) is everybody who gets up in the morning and sets an alarm clock and goes to work, right? Supply curve. That's everyone in business. The Democrats make fun of the supply curve. OK, but will those I mean, benefits,
0: will, Congressman, will those benefits only go to the fancy big houses around the University of Richmond, or are they going to go to someplace 12 miles east of the Richmond airport?
2: Yeah, no, there's there's huge economic literature out there on this stuff, on the S-Corp and even C-Corp stuff. It, corporations don't pay taxes, right? So they got they're, they're not people. So somebody pays taxes, 70% of the rate reductions to corporations and S-corps go to wage earners, right? And we got to do better on even there, which wage earners, right? In the distribution, we want to make sure it it does get through the middle. But the, the middle class, the lower middle class, the worst thing you can do, right? And Bernanke said this after the financial crisis, is lose those skills. He, we lost half the value of the stock market, and Bernanke and Greenspan said, That's not the worst part. The worst part is for the poor and the lower-income folks, the skill loss that they will lose and the psychological health, right, as you get displaced from the workforce and you lose your psychological happiness. That's the damage.
0: Dave Brad, thank you so much. the 7th District of of Virginia as well. I might point out, Mr. Gura, that the gentleman that figured that out was Lawrence Summers Uh writing with Olivier Blanchard in about 1980. (laughs) This is Bloomberg. You know, he publishes every day and it's always interesting. But yesterday was particularly mint, Greg Vellier. Why don't you bring him
1: in? Yeah, Greg Villiers giving us important perspective on what's going on in Washington, both legislatively, politically, policy-wise uh, as well. He is with Horizon Investments and joins us on our phone lines. Greg, this morning in your note, know, you focus on distractions and the way by which the president might be able to to harness them. We certainly had a big one yesterday. Uh, distracting from the legislative agenda as he and Senator Corker went back and forth on Twitter and the cable networks uh, as well. What do you make of how all of this played out and what are the ramifications of it going to be? As we pointed out a couple of times on the show this morning, the timetable here for tax reform is tight.
3: Yeah, two points I'd make. Good morning, David. First of all, I think that the fundamentals of the economy still dominate the markets, and the fundamentals are good, despite all of the nonsense and the tweets in Washington. The second point I'd make is that Trump should go to church today and thank the Lord for the story in the Washington Post last night that apparently indicates that Hillary Clinton and the Democratic Party have funded this group that's putting together opposition research, a dossier on Trump, Trump can now claim to his adoring base that there's a conspiracy to get him. And there's some justification for him to say that.
1: This is a big piece by uh, Adam Entis of The, of the Post, who's heading off to, to The New Yorker, big investigative reporter uh, for them. And indeed, the president did tweet about this uh, shortly after you, you sent out your note uh, this morning, Greg. So predictive, uh, as always. Uh, what's, what's the fallout from this going to be? I'm sure you listened to Senator Flake speak on the, the Senate floor yesterday, heard what he had to say about the, the faults of the institution right now and of the party system and politics generally. What's the fallout from that going to be?
3: Well, I don't think it matters that much for Trump's base. Trump's base despised traitors like Flake. Uh, Flake never would have won a renomination in Arizona. And, and now Trump's base that believes it's all fake news anyway has this news story this morning. And there's also the uranium story. So Trump's base, I think, will hang yeah. in there. And as long, as long as they do, he's inoculated.
0: Is Trump's base correlated with his declining poll numbers?
3: Well, the declining poll numbers, Tom, are largely because independents have abandoned him. Right. Democrats already had. So the three segments, you've got two of the three that have abandoned him. But as long as 80 percent of the Republicans support him, a lot of members of the Senate are too afraid to speak out.
0: I mean, I, I look at this, Greg, and the sea change in your note yesterday where they could actually lose the House and the Democrats could take the House. Which of those three is the dynamics? Democrats actually show up to vote, or independents are the game changers, or is it about the president's loyal base leaving him? Which is it?
3: Well, I, I think there's a bit of all three, but I'd add one other thing, Tom, and that is money. Money is just flowing into Democrats and running for House seats. The Republicans are stunned. There's a lot of angry Democrats out there.
1: What did you make of, uh, I mean, we, we have insight into what the president had to say to Republican senators yesterday, but he did make the trip up to Capitol Hill uh, to speak at that weekly policy uh, luncheon. What do you make of him doing that? Uh, and what role do you see him playing here? He said it to Dallas tonight. I believe he's going to speak at a rally there, uh, and he's going to do some fundraising uh, as well. Where do you see President Trump playing a role when it comes to advancing tax reform at this point?
3: Well, yesterday was a nice pep rally, but I would have to say that there's a, a growing risk That he's going to be meddlesome. He's going to be like George Steinbrenner used to be with the Yankees. He's going to micromanage the state and local tax on the estate tax. So on issue after issue, Republicans have to look over their shoulders to see if he's going to second guess them.
1: And does that highlight, Greg, the, the the fundamental problem here, which is we don't really have a Donald Trump policy or White House policy when it comes to uh, taxes, just as we don't or didn't when it comes to health care reform as well. You have Republicans on Capitol Hill debating the 401k provision, in the tax mm-hmm. code, for instance. We didn't know up until that point how the president felt about it.
3: Yeah, basically what he wants is a victory, period. Details are all very uh, fluid and negotiable. But he, he does want to, and I still think he's going to get a tax bill. I just think getting it done between now and the end of the year is a long shot. There's just too many divisive issues. It's probably going to come at the end of the winter. I think you'll get a deal finally.
0: Okay, so he gets a deal, but that means the Senate, I believe the correct me if I'm wrong, it's, You know, I flunked civics, but I believe the Senate has to vote for it. Maybe Mr. Corker, Mr. Flake are upset. Maybe Mr. Paul's unpredictable. Is yep. there a fourth Senator Greg Vellier's watching?
3: Well, no, three would do it. Let's say the Democrats all say no. That's not certain, but it's probable. Then if if they lose just two votes, uh, that means uh, Pence would have to break a tie. If they lose three votes,
0: they lose. Okay, but who's the fourth senator you're watching? I mean, I don't have time to watch all this song and dance like you and David Gura. Who's the name that you're watching besides Paul Flake and Corker?
3: You know, maybe, I I think McCain will vote for it. I think Susan Collins will vote for the tax bill. I think those are the only three that you could look at Mm. and say they could defect. And again, if the three defect, that's a big problem for them.
1: Walk us through the the timetable here, if you would. Uh, As I mentioned, the timetable is is tight. What are the things you're going to be watching for as indicators that this may or may not happen, could happen, uh, as you say, in, in early winter, might happen by the end of the year?
3: Well, first of all, you've got to get tomorrow uh, a vote on the budget resolution, which everyone thought would be easy, uh, coming out of the House just to reaffirm what the Senate did. But a lot of House members are upset over the state and local tax break being rescinded. A lot of moderate Republicans from the Northeast, for example. So that could be a close vote on Thursday. Then the next thing to look for is next week. Kevin Brady, uh, the Ways and Means Committee chairman, will unveil his bill. It will be controversial. You can't do make an omelet without breaking eggs. And I think there will be a lot of controversial proposals. Right. Once we get that done, you know, maybe by early December we get the Senate moving. But I just think the one final point I'd make, there's going to be a huge budget fight in early December because the budget ex- fires. Yeah. And I think Schumer, Schumer and others are going to have a field day with that. Another reason why we don't get taxes this year.
0: When do we get a scoring? I'm using, using the phrase as an amateur. When do we get a scoring of all this tax blather? In
3: the next couple of weeks, once Brexit really, comes up, yeah, I think so. And, and I'm sure people will say it only favors the uh, the wealthy. That aggravates populace on the left and on the right. That's still another reason why this is, is maybe going to have a few speed bumps during the month of December.
1: Greg, what's the fallout been from this back and forth between uh, Kevin Hassett at the White House uh, Lawrence Summers, Good professor at, at Harvard University, Kirkman, formerly I'm of the, the, the CIA, Paul Krugman jumping into the, 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 mm-hmm. the fray as well. What's the fallout bed in Washington from that, this debate over the integrity of, uh, uh, of, of economic research in Washington today?
3: Well, there's lies, there's damn lies, and then there's statistics. And you can prove anything you want with statistics. Uh, I think that this is a theological issue. It's not a math issue. And I think that theologically you've got enough yeah. Republicans united to pass a bill.
0: Now, Randall Krosner at the Booth School of Chicago teaches that course, Greg, theology and microeconomics. So it's, it's a really, it's a barn burner. We say good morning to all out at the school Chicago, which is where I, I actually heard somebody say this once in a lecture at AEA. Yes, what we do at Chicago is we teach microeconomics and then we teach more microeconomics. Greg, Pellier, thank you for a uh, perspective on uh, Washington and the politics that's out there. As well, David, I'm so glad you brought up that question. Um, I'm going to put out the Krugman article with a great Classic marginal chart of economics. It's complex, folks. Krugman writes it like everybody knows this. Well, guess what, David? They don't. They go down in flames freshman year looking at uh, some of these dynamics. But to your wonderful point, David, it is about an adult conversation on theory and law that we know versus, as Greg says, the theology of it all.
1: And I think, as Lawrence Summers would say, it's about the integrity of these institutions uh, as well. He says that he's watched uh, Council of Economic Advisers, uh, chairman, defend their positions before the president, not operate within the, the the political framework of a given White House. And the the point he's making here is that's what should be uh, continuing. And uh, I'm scheduled yeah. to speak with Kevin Hassett on Friday uh, at 1 o'clock p.m., so we'll see what he has to say about uh all of the conversations surrounding that first paper he wrote about corporate tax reform and its effect on individuals. This is Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio. David Gura and Tom Keen in New York.
0: Michael Purvis joins us now. Uh, with Whedon, there's like eight things to talk about. We don't have enough time for that. Uh, David, I know you want to get to the VIX. I got to go back to your wonderful call on weak Asia currencies versus the U.S. dollar. You nailed it. And then right now, we got the oddest thing. We've got the dollar strengthening and Asia currency strengthening at the same time. Discuss.
4: Well, there's... Uh, you know the dollar has been, of course, rallying since early September against so many different currencies. There and to a certain degree, that was a relief rally, right after Trump's election. The you know the the dollar surge and then after the inauguration, the dollar uh, tended to get weaker and weaker and weaker. And if, if you if you overlay the DXY chart or for that matter the BDXY chart with uh, Trump's approval ratings, you'll see a very obvious correlation. Yeah, right. And to me, that that's that's a statement about the Trump call. Uh, If you will falling out of the money, so Um,
0: brilliantly said is strong U.S. dollar now a Washington political strong dollar?
4: Well, it's certainly a a big part of that. That coin, if if, if tax gets uh, further traction here, yes, you're going to see the dollar that DXY get up to the high 90s. I would uh, I would suspect
0: 93.83 now. David Gurl right. looks at that every morning right. at but, 3 a.m.
4: But, but 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 Tom, when you referenced you know my ADXY discussions and its relationship to the VIX from uh, you know in the aftermath of the uh, shocked eval in, in China in August of 2015. You know, China is a different China right now, Um, and and one of the themes that I think is 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 very resonant is that if you look at the China PPI data, um, the correlation of that over the last twenty four months since since I made that uh, call. Um, the correlation of that with forward inflation in the U.S. has been extraordinarily strong. Uh, you know, it's, it's the R squared is about 0.8 there, and well, so so the China PPI you have to watch when you're talking of, when you're having a U.S. inflation discussion. It dipped in Q2 along with our inflation, and then. In July and August and in September, it uh, the PPI yeah. continued to recover. And I think that feeds into Janet's, yeah. you know, sort of full sep- – yeah. damn the torpedoes
1: full speed ahead.
0: David, all you got to know about China inflation, it's all about pork. It's uh-huh. all about pig prices.
1: There you go. David. Michael, let me ask you what you've you've heard uh, from the Fed chair on the the subject of inflation, uh, if you agree with her, that we're seeing sort of transitory effects here. And also just what do you make of the introspection that we've heard from her when she spoke in uh, Cleveland, for instance. She talked about the problems of modeling. She talked about technology's role in all of this uh, as well. Do you see the the conversation about uh, inflation evolving? It's evolving,
4: I don't think it's evolving as as fast a clip as as some of us would like to see it um you know when i when I look at the data dependency narrative that that to me to my mind that's a way of saying our Phillips curves are kind of broken or at least heavily distorted, and we're making it up as we as we go along and I think that's fair. I think that was a good that that's to my mind sensible a policy I think the question is is there's this you know, we are in a different place here than we were before the financial crisis in terms of the rate of technological adoption uh, and 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 the implications for um, for inflation. And I think there's 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 a, a much more nuanced discussion on inflation and how the Fed models need to be calibrated.
0: David, very quickly here, uh, David Gura. Uh, the 10-year yield at 2.47% is now three standard deviations higher yield. That's not like a crisis. It's not like a plunge. But that's that's a yield market that's moving with a vengeance. Three standard deviations on the 10-year yield. I rarely say that.
1: Let me ask you about what you're, you're expecting to hear from the ECB tomorrow and from a market perspective. How much does the size of of, of a taper matter? Well, what I've been arguing
4: for for, for some time now, uh, I think three years maybe, is that the short end is really governed by U.S. economic data and and the Fed, of course. The long end is really governed uh, since QE started in Europe um, by by Mario Draghi, and so you know we 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 have our QT announced and articulated the 10 billion going to 50 over the next 12 months here in the U.S. But to my mind, whether this 2.45 percent yield becomes a 2.65 percent yield or a 2.25 percent yield. Is going to hinge much more on what Mario Draghi says and does, and not just tomorrow, but in the, in, in, in the coming weeks. I, I'm going to uh, suggest that he's going to probably take a conservative and uh, gentle path for the markets, and the fact that this, we're seeing this sort of rate surge here is not going to be lost on Mario Draghi, um, even if his boons are not moving quite as dramatically.
1: Tom mentioned the VIX. Let me, let me just ask you about what it's going to take to, to catalyze that move upward some. I mean, it's been stuck very much around – I guess nine, ten, eleven here for for weeks and weeks and weeks. Well, I I, w- I would first say that I think there's
4: a there's a scenario here where I think we'll see eight prints and seven prints on the VIX um, uh, between now and the end of the year. Wow. Uh, um, I know that sounds an outlier case, and I'm not saying that that that's a probable case. I'm saying it's a very real scenario. Um, uh, and and right. if you go back, you know, we all think about the VIX starting in 1990, which it did. But if you go Look at realized vol in 1964. You had levels much lower than they are right now. And if you had a VIX back in 1963, 64, 65, you would see VIX prints of six, seven, and eight. And if you look at you know the Q4 melt-up scenario into year end with a you know a performance chasing dynamics and uh, you know decent enough growth, and let's assume the dollar and rates you know are 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 friendly in that in that environment, we don't get any major shocks that way. Um, I could see real this bleed-up just draining <clears throat> okay. realized and draining the VIX right, right This is
0: it. really important, what Mr. Purvis just said there, folks, to, to review this. A VIX of 20 is average. Crisis is 30, 40. Think Lehman Lowe's and all that. We've come down with a massive bull market to a quiet of 12, 11, 10, rarely a 9. You say we're going to drive to an ever more quiescent VIX why what 's going to be the driving force? Is it going to be sheer price appreciation of the s and p five hundred
4: right now you know within the s and p five hundred uh, which is what what drives the vix is that you have a few a few a few very favorable factors you have you have a, a very healthy sector rotation. You have stretched valuations, so so the market doesn't leap up every day or, or every week. It sort of bleeds up, uh, grinds up uh, uh, there, and that's a recipe for low realized volatility. And if low, if if volatility uh, continue is perceived to stay low. Um, and, and I would argue can get even lower, um, you know, against that, that backdrop, uh, you, you will see the VIX get repriced. And we've already taken out that, that uh, lifetime uh, low print on the VIX uh, just two weeks ago. I think we could, you know, start seeing eight handles uh, again before between now and the end
1: of the year. Extraordinary. You've highlighted the convergence here of uh, – we're talking about the dollar it's earnings season as well. We're going to get a, a primer here from Dave Wilson just a little bit about what he's, he's watching. Uh, what does that converg- convergence mean, uh, and what have you observed uh, in this earnings season thus far? I,
4: I, to, to clarify the question, you're talking about more about how the earning, the trajectory of earnings is. Yes, exactly. Well, you know, like I, I think like the Q3 is sort of coming in, uh, you know, slightly better than expectations, more or less like several, almost every quarter of the last few years have. I think the companies have gotten this game down. It's an algorithm they run with the sell side where they make sure to beat earnings in aggregate, um, uh, you know, by a decent number. Of course, there's always several single stock exceptions, but if you look at the the, the entire group they tend to you know beat on revenues beat on earnings okay. and and so forth. The big question is is Q4 which of course we won't know till mid-late winter how it really comes in. Right. It's not going to be what the market is expecting 20% year over year. It will be more like right. Q3 8
0: 9%. Michael Purvis, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it with Whedon, and again the idea uh here is uh Uh, Two ideas there, the interesting dynamics of the dollar and ADXY, the Asian dollar, and also, of course, VIX dynamics. Just extraordinary. Jen Tucker working on the headlines uh, to get that out of the Bloomberg uh, terminal. Uh, This is an immense joy. We have with us today... Uh, Two people in a building Wells Fargo research capability. One of them is a familiar name uh, to us, Michael Mayo, the senior analyst with Wells Fargo. I believe he covers banks too big to succeed or too big to buy or too big to hold or whatever it is. The big banks. And joining him is his colleague, Michael Schumacher from uh, Wells Fargo, who I knew for years under the combine at UBS. And Michael, let me start with you with the new source. Nice of you to bring us higher yields. <laughs> I'm surprised you almost didn't cancel the interview. Are we at a tipping point when you look at the, the vector on a, a, a log y axis of two year, 10 year, 30 year bond? Is there something special in the pixie dust of this week of October?
5: Yeah, Tom, I do think there's something special, and that is you've got a big shift in central bank policy globally. Certainly over here, people talk about the Fed, but it's not just the Fed. For instance, tomorrow the ECB is probably going to announce a cutback in its purchases. Second time this year, we think it goes down to €40 billion Euro per month. That's a 50% cut on the year. When you think about the Fed, look at the probability of a de rate hike now. It's 80% plus, and two <coughs> months ago it was probably 30 Bank of England's likely to tighten next right. month or next week, actually. I don't think that's a great idea, but they'll probably do it anyway. So you've got three big central banks, the trifecta, in play. And I think that's the big change that we've right. had over the last couple months. Is
0: this good for your world? I mean, I know you're not on speaking terms with Ken Sena, but when you look at Michael <sighs> Schumacher, I mean, is this good for the banking world that maybe we're actually normalizing?
6: This Entire environment has been the long aftermath of the financial crisis. I mean, the idea of quantitative easing has never been done to this level before, and the reverse of quantitative easing has never happened before. So there's a lot of uncertainties. Having said that, getting back to a more normal environment would be good for the banks. Uh, higher yields, as Mike Schumacher uh, expects, and, and the ten-year could be good for the banks. And what you saw with the third-quarter earnings, you know, Main Street banking did better than Wall Street banking, so Main Street banking could benefit from a steeper yield curve, if that plays out. And then Wall Street banking could benefit by having more normal volatility where you need the financial intermediation of the likes of some of the large banks.
1: Michael Schumacher was down in D.C. yesterday talking to some of our colleagues on the economic team, and they were all abuzz about something that Benjamin Applebaum tweeted yesterday, the way in which Reagan announced his Fed appointee was in a Saturday <coughs> address to the nation just at the bottom. His aides weren't even aware that he was he was going to do it. So we're waiting for this, this this word. How do you begin to forecast or plot out or play out uh, what it's going to mean if we have Kevin Warsh in the, the main seat or, or John Taylor? or any any number of these configurations going forward?
5: Yeah, our approach is we looked at the various candidates and compared market moves both in Fed funds and also the yield curve to changes in some of the online markets. What we found is John Taylor was a disruptive Uh candidate, no question about it. Higher short-term rates, flatter curve. Okay,
0: but this is so important. Can John Taylor be a dove when necessary?
5: Could John Taylor be a dove when necessary? John Taylor's a model guy, Tom, and if the model right. says dove, he means dove. That's it. So he'll stick to his model, I think. Come heck. Or okay, high but the water, model has too bad. many
0: plugins. I mean, we all you studied this at Cornell. I mean, at Lake Seneca or whatever went down three feet. <laughs> you, you studied this. You there's, <laughs>
5: there's, there's Cayuga.
0: I'm sorry. Uh, what do I know? I don't know my Finger Lakes. What is this? A quiz? Anyways you study this at ta- at cornell where there's too many plugins in the taylor rule he's a model guy i adore john but there's just too many variables isn't there
5: a lot of variables and you can tweak them too right there's no magic rule saying these coefficients ought to be 0.5 all the time that can change quite a bit but still to your point, I think he could be dovish in a different scenario. Was he dovish today? No. Is he likely to be dovish in the next two years? I doubt it. Mm. So to me, he's a hawkish candidate today.
1: Mike man, how much does this matter to those who are running these big banks? I mean, is it is it worth them speculating what's going to happen and who's going to be there, or are they just going to wait and see what the fallout from it may be?
6: Well, it, it certainly matters to the continuity of monetary policy. Yeah. I'm talking to, to Mike Schumacher all the time. I'm on the equity side. He's on the fixed income side. I'm like, what does this mean? And, you know, his – Uh, But if I'm interpreting what you say, Mike Schumacher, correctly, that this should lead to more volatility but volatility around a trend, the good sort of volatility. If so, that would be a good scenario because then you have more market activity, more market participants getting involved, more market making, and that could be for the capital market players because their services would be needed more.
0: Okay, we're gonna go CFA on everybody here right now. Michael Schumacher, when I look at uh, Fabozzi and the, the breakup, if you will, of yield dynamics right now, what has your attention within the term structure? Is it a real rate analysis? Is it an all in nominal rate analysis? Does it have to do with the dynamics of duration? What is it?
5: Yeah, for us, Tom, I would say that it's a combination of real and nominal. It sounds like a little bit of a cop-out. Oh, come on. What, be... what is
0: it, So Washington? <laughs> <area>? <laughs> All
5: right. I'll give you our biggest call, and I'll tell you why. Please. And That is that when you look at the intermediate part of the Treasury curve, we think it'll flatten. And the reason is, effectively, the Fed's balance sheet reductions. And it's pretty simple. You don't have to go to Febosa. You don't have to go to Cornell. You don't have to go to Maryland or whatever it might be. You don't have to go to school, for that matter. All you need to do is look at what the Fed's been buying over the last year and say if the Fed buys fewer, those securities probably get hit. And what has the Fed been buying most of for the last year? Five-year treasuries. So we think the five-year is most exposed. Ten-year is probably a lot less. And the ratio of five- to ten-year purchases about two to one. So we think the curve is going to flatten quite a bit because the five-year yield goes up, call it 40 to 50 basis points over six to nine months. Ten-year yield goes up maybe 20. So that, to me, is the big play right now. How so com- to translate com- ahead, that, yeah. David
0: Guerrero, because I know you're doing this at home off your yes. Bloomberg uh, <laughs> terminal, is, is the five ten spread is worth watching.
1: There you go. Very quickly here, Mike. We'll come back in just a second with both of you. But uh, how confident are you that the, the process of normalization, as it's been outlined and telegraphed by this Fed, will continue no matter who's in, in the main chair at the Fed?
5: Oh, I think the chair always matters. There's not much doubt about that. And I think that… If you get a chair that's radically different from the other members, is everyone, every other member going to follow along? Not necessarily, but still, the leader makes a big difference. This
0: has been a wonderful monologue with Michael Schumacher. We're going to come back and maybe talk to Michael Mayo about the future of the banks as well. Michael Mayo, Michael Schumacher with us. Of course, they are with uh, Wells Fargo. Thrilled to have them in the studio. Mike Mayo, we spent way too much time with Mr. Schumacher uh, last time around. Uh, I'm going to put out on Twitter, you'll see it first on Bloomberg Radio, Citigroup reverse split from four or 500 a share, total collapse and saved at $10 a share. But if you forget about the gloom, 10 to 74, this is your single best buy. This is the thing you're liking the best. What is it specific about Citigroup that makes it more attractive three, five years out than the other too big to fail banks?
6: Well, we are positive on all three of the the largest banks, uh, but Citigroup is our top idea. We think the stock price can double over five years. And it's not like the one item that's so great. It's the thousands of items that are now much more solid. Citigroup has had the biggest structural risk reduction of any large bank. So I might be the only person saying this, but thank you, regulators. You know, Mm -hmm. Citigroup and some of the large banks went kicking and screaming, oh, we need to have more capital. We need to have more liquidity. Well, guess what? Citigroup's balance sheet now is the strongest that it's been in a generation. And something happened during earnings, which was unpleasant. The stock traded down. And Citigroup said they would take $500 million of extra reserves for, you know, credit card losses and stuff. But – contrast that to a decade ago, literally a decade ago now, when they had over 100 times that amount and unrealized losses on the balance sheet. It's night and day from where they were a decade ago.
0: Does America have shadow banking in 2017 and 2018? David Goldman was in the other day from Bank of America years ago, who absolutely nailed the derivative issues, senior tranches and that that blew up in 07. Do we have shadow banking now, Mike
6: Mayo? There's always going to be a degree of shadow banking. What I analyze and what What's very strong would be the U.S. banks, which have the strongest balance sheets in a generation, the highest level of capital liquidity in a generation, and they can absorb not just one financial crisis, but two financial crises. So there will be problems, but I would say it's more likely the biggest problems will be outside of the largest U.S. banks.
1: Michael Schumacher, help us understand what the landscape looks like regulatorily. We're talking about a lot of changes to the Federal Reserve. How keenly focused are you on Uh, What could change in terms of their regulatory responsibilities, how they might be altered? And and I guess more broadly speaking, do do you see regulations being reduced at all dramatically in Washington?
5: We do. And I think the first step the Fed took is having quarrels on the board now. That helps. And he's really the regulatory czar, for lack of a better term. And even before he came aboard, the Fed seemed to be a little bit more mild on the regulatory front. So I think that's a plus. It's not just the Fed. You've got other entities, I think, that are taking a bit of a lighter touch, whether it's the CFTC, et cetera. So that seems to be happening. And if you look at the Trump administration, it's introduced far fewer new regulations than really any other president in the last four or five. So it's a notable shift. Mike Mayo, given that,
1: you talk about the integrity of the strength of the balance sheet. Is it likely to become maybe not weaker but less strong as a result of what we're seeing in Washington?
6: Well, that's a great question. When does deregulation go too far? And I will say I'm week 13 at Wells Fargo Securities, and I talk to the fixed income side like – Mike Schumacher, and uh, the credit side is ranked number one in II Magazine on fixed income for oh, five what, years. On, say, what is this, a PR sorry. effort? <laughs> having, I, I have a point. I have a point. The reason I do this, when deregulation goes too far, the people on the credit side of the house start to get worried. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I talk to them all the time. He say, okay, you're going to relax the Volcker rule. You're going to relax Dodd-Frank. you rela- relax capital right. standards. When do you get worried as a holder of bank bonds? And so I have an in-house check, and I'd say right now, right. we're nowhere close to that Chances are we'll overshoot like we've done for the last many decades, but right now we're not in risk of that. Just
0: because of time, I want to go back to Michael Schumacher here. One of the great ideas here, Michael, with uh, uh, yields maybe moving out and we may get escape velocity and all the Fed derby, and that is a concept of so many of our listeners of financial repression. I'm going to associate that with Bill Gross, but I think it's sort of generally out in the zeitgeist. The idea that on a real yield basis I'm never going to make it back like I used to make real yield 10 and 20, 30 years ago. Are we going to escape financial repression as yields come up?
5: We might, Tom, but that's going to take a long time. I would say you're looking at 5 to 10 years, probably best case. There have been other instances of financial repression. That's really what the... The established countries did after World War II, the ones that were still on their feet, and it took a good decade plus. So when you think about the size of central mm-hmm. bank balance sheets, I agree with your right. theory. I think the exit's rocky, but I don't think you get back to, quote, normal conditions anytime really right. soon.
0: Do you have a single best buy? I mean, we, we kid Mayo about single best buy and its Citigroup and that, and you know, there's always a different theme, et cetera. Is there a single best buy in the Shoemaker world?
5: Single best, I guess I would think about it a little bit more differently. I think about it in terms of single best trade for us, flatter yield curve in the U.S. That's
0: Back it. in that five to ten yeah. year space. I've got to do that chart stuff, Dave. See how he reminded me to put that chart out? I'm
5: looking at it From right Wells
0: we Fargo. <laughs> <laughs> David, one final question, please.
1: Yeah, Michael Schumacher, let me just ask you what you're going to be listening for tomorrow from the, the ECB. Good question. Uh, sort of what indications question. you're looking for in terms of size of taper or what we might hear from Mario Draghi.
5: Frankly, to me, it's the tone of Mario Draghi in the press conference. I think the taper is very likely. I I suspect he does not want to do it. He's being dragged, kicking and screaming. And the question is, will he give any hints that this is the last or this is the last for a long time or don't even think about rate hikes? That's the thing you want to focus on.
0: Is he being dragged by the Bundesbank or tangentially by Schäuble exiting to the Bundestag?
5: Yeah, I think the Bundesbank has been unhappy for a long time, and I do think that's right, Tom. It's the Germans who are finally winning one battle in the ECB.
0: This has been great. Michael Schumacher, thank you so much. Thank you for bringing Michael Mayer. It's always uh, good to see right They are with guy. Wells Fargo. Did, did you see? I didn't look out in the atrium. Is the stagecoach out in the, the atrium? Yet, no. You know what those horses are like in Central Park South. They could be a threat to us right here. They are with yeah. Wells Fargo. Uh, Really, really, I'll be honest, saying something about given uh, the uh, sport of Wells Fargo over the last two, three years as they build out their research capability, including Ken Ken Senna. What does Ken Senna do for you guys?
6: Well, look, we're collaborating a lot. I talk to Ken Senna a lot. As you know, he's the new Internet analyst at Wells Fargo Securities. He's talking about greater automation. We think U.S. banks will be the most efficient in history in five years. It's, yeah. You know, some of the automation from Ken's area can help. There's other, a lot of means reducing branches. Okay. So Ken Senna is Mr. Future in terms of research and the Internet.
0: You heard it from Mike Mayo. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts.